This is Our American Stories. We're about to tell you a story about a dictator and a dissident. The story of Fidel Castro told through the story of a man he imprisoned. And before we do that, I wanted to just share a touch from Umberto Fontova's piece about Fidel Castro's death. Just to give you a context to the story we're about to tell you. Fidel Castro jailed and tortured political prisoners at a higher rate than Stalin during the Great Terror. He murdered more Cubans in the first three years in power than Hitler murdered Germans during his first six. Castro shattered through mass executions, mass jailings, mass larceny and exile virtually every family on the island of Cuba. Many opponents of the regime qualify as the longest-suffering political prisoners in modern history, having suffered prison camps, forced labor, and torture chambers for a period three times as long in Fidel Castro's gulag as Alexander Solzhenitsyn suffered in Stalin's. And by the way, Solzhenitsyn's remarkable Harvard speech you can get on our This Day in Histories. It's one of the great speeches ever delivered in history on United States soil. Fidel Castro also came closest of anyone in history to starting a worldwide nuclear war. In the above process, Castro converted a highly civilized nation with a higher standard of living than much of Europe and swamped with immigrants into a slum ravaged by tropical diseases and with the highest suicide rate in the entire Western Hemisphere. Over 20 times as many people have died trying to escape Castro's Cuba as died trying to escape East Germany. And yet prior to Castroism, Cuba received more immigrants per capita than almost any nation on Earth, more than the U.S. did, including the Ellis Island years per capita. And so with that as a background and Fidel Castro's recent death, We bring you a column, and it's one of the rare times I'll do a reading, uh, but it's a story that I think you'll enjoy if such things are possible to enjoy. The Dictator and the Dissident, the story of Fidel Castro and Armando Valladares. It's a part of the Fidel Castro story Michael Moore won't tell or doesn't know. It's a story you certainly didn't hear as the media endlessly opined about Castro's complicated legacy, but it reveals so much more about the dictator than any other story could tell. The year was 1959. Castro, a young revolutionary, had seized Cuba's imagination with talk of democracy and a new vision for its people. It didn't take long, however, for one follower to discover Castro's true nature and for Castro to run up against the limits of his own earthly power. Armando Valladares may not have been the first man to challenge the Cuban dictator, but he eventually became the best known. By his own account, the young Valladares was an early supporter of Castro's revolution, taking a job in the office of the Ministry of Communications for the Revolutionary Government, where he worked as a postal clerk. But things changed when he was asked to put a communist slogan on his desk. It comprised of three simple words. I'm with Fidel. Amadaro Valladares refused. A young artist and poet who also happened to be a Christian, Valladares understood the meaning of the request. 
What he did not know and could not know was just how far his own government would go to bend his will. Soon after his refusal to comply, Valladares was arrested by political police at his parents' home. Faced with trump-up charges of terrorism, a favorite tactic of the Castro regime for silencing dissent, he was given a 30-year sentence. Valladares would spend time in different prisons for the next 22 years. The first, La Cabana, forged some of his very worst memories. Quote, Each night, the firing squad executed scores of men in its trenches, he told the Beckett Fund, which last year honored him with its Canterbury Prize, given annually to a person who embodies an unfailing commitment to religious freedom. Quote, We could hear each phase of the executions, and during this time, these young men, patriots, would die shouting, Long live Christ, the King, down with communism. And then you would hear the gunshots. Every night there were shootings. Every night, every night, every night. Years passed, and the communists fixated on enrolling prisoners in re-education programs. Valladares, still in his early sentence, was offered the chance at, quote, political rehabilitation. But again, he refused to comply. He was sent then to an even more brutal prison, and the government ramped up its efforts to break his spirit. Again, quoting Valadaris, I spent eight years locked in a blackout cell without sunlight or even artificial light. I never left. I was stuck in that cell, ten feet long, four feet wide, with a hole in the corner to take care of my bodily needs, no running water, naked. Eight years. All of the torture, all of the violations of human rights, he said, had one goal. Break him, break his resistance, and make him accept political rehabilitation. That, he said, was their only objective. And when we come back, this showdown between the dictator and the dissident, which you won't believe the ending, this remarkable story of individual conscience and its inability to be suppressed by even the greatest and one of the world's most feared leaders. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The life of Fidel Castro understood through one man's struggle. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We continue the story, The Dictator and the Dissident, the story of Fidel Castro 
and Armando Valladares. I wrote this for the National Review. It's posted there. You can take a read, send it to friends. We pick up after having learned that Valadares had spent eight years in solitary. And I mean straight solitary. After nearly a decade, prison officials adjusted their terms once again. If Armando would simply sign a document renouncing his beliefs, he could return to his family. The choice was simple. To Valladares, physical freedom or spiritual liberty. Quote, For many people, it wasn't practical to resist. Better to sign the paper and just leave, Valladares said. But for me, signing that paper would have been spiritual suicide. I couldn't do it. So how did Valladares endure? How did his faith, his spirit, manage itself during these years alone in prison? Quote, In the beginning I embraced God, perhaps for fear of losing my life, since I was in danger of being executed, he told the National Association of Evangelicals, in 1983, but hearing those men proclaim their love for Christ just prior to their executions moved him in ways he could never have imagined. Again, quoting from him in this terrific speech, I realized then that Christ could be of help to me, not merely by saving my life, but also giving my life and my death, if that was the case, an ethical sense that would dignify all of us. I believe that it was at that particular moment and not before when Christianity, besides being a religious faith, became a way of life that in my own circumstances resulted in resistance. Resisting torture, resisting confinement, resisting hunger, and even resisting the constant temptation to join that political rehabilitation and indoctrination program that would have ended my predicament. The battle lines were drawn for Valadares. The material life versus the spiritual life. Castro and his earthly ambitions of a utopian dictatorship versus Jesus Christ and his promise of everlasting life for those who follow him. And by the way, when you study Wilberforce, Martin Luther King, the abolition movement, you find this recurring theme in Christianity. Bonhoeffer. Heroism beyond belief, done because of human faith in God. Back to the story. Castro fought harder, desperate now to strip Valadares of his most valuable possession, his sense of decency. But once again, Valadares' faith proved up to the task. Quote, To be Christian, he said, under those circumstances meant that I could not hate my tormentors. It meant to maintain the belief that the suffering was meaningful because if man gives up his moral and religious values or if he allows himself to be carried by a desire to hate or for revenge, his very existence loses all meaning. Ayodaros noted often that he was not alone in his spiritual battle with Castro. His fellow Christians always showed him the way. Again, quoting him from this speech, the National Evangelical Association. I saw dozens of Christians suffering and dying, committed like myself to maintaining their dignity, 
and their richness of spirit beyond misery and beyond pain. I remember with emotion Gerardo Gonzalez, a Protestant preacher, who knew by heart the whole biblical of passages and who would copy them, share them with his brothers in belief in prison. I cannot forget this man whom all of us called brother in faith. He interposed himself before a burst of machine gun fire to save other prisoners who were beaten in what is known now as the massacre of Boniata Prison. Gerardo repeated before dying the very words said by Christ himself on the cross, quote, Forgive them, brothers, and Father, for they know not what they do. And all of us, when the blood had dried, struggled with our own conscience to attain something so difficult, so beautiful, the ability to forgive our enemies. Valladaris' God, too, showed him the way and the light. Again, quoting him from this speech, There are no impossibilities for those who love and seek God. The more ferocious the hate of my jailers, the more my heart would fill with love and a faith that gave me strength to support everything, but not with the conformist or masochistic attitude, rather filled with joy, internal peace, and freedom, because Christ walked with me in my cell. While in prison, Valadaris began to write poetry, denouncing his oppressors. Without paper or pen, he wrote on cigarette papers and onion skins, using his own blood as ink. His wife, whom he met in prison, smuggled those poems to the outside world, and they became an international bestseller. From My Wheelchair was the book of poems released in 1977. Quote, there is nothing dictators fear more than artists, Valadaris told that evangelical association, but especially poets. In one particular poem, Life Was Not Enough, dedicated to Pedro, Pedro Luis Boitel, whom he called an unforgettable brother, he expanded on this thought. Life was not enough for you in that torture chamber. But there were rifle butts and boots to spare, buckets of urine and excrement thrown in your face. They could not forgive you your labors of light and words. They feared your smile, the eloquence of your hands. They feared the fertility of your ideas and your manner of being silent. They feared your life, Pedro. And so they murdered you. Today, Valadaris paints rather than writes poems. His pictures are not scenes of torture and darkness, though, but vibrant landscapes that depict his soul, the refuge where he survived Castro's war on his body, Castro's war on his conscience. Castro is dead, and there will be countless biographies dedicated to burnishing his legacy. But the best way to understand Castro's life is to appreciate Valadaris's. Valadaris's story may never be required reading in Cuban schools, but it must be in every American school. Call the story The Dictator and the Dissident. It's a hell of a yarn. And it is.
When we come back, we'll read one more poem from Valladares, and we're going to play a clip from a remarkable speech he gave at the Beckett Fund about individual conscience, freedom of thought, and the spiritual life. It's a bit more about some statistics on Castro and Cuba. According to scholars and researchers at the Cuba Archive, Castro regime's total death toll from torture, prison beatings, firing squads, machine gunning of escapees and drownings approached 100,000. All of this confirmed, by the way, by Amnesty International, a pretty important group when it comes to human rights. Cuba's population in 1960 was 6.4 million. According to the same human rights groups and to Freedom House, 500,000 Cubans, young, old, male, and female, have passed through Castro's prison and forced labor camps. This puts Fidel Castro's political incarceration rate right up there with his hero, Joseph Stalin. Again, things you need to know about Castro, things you're not hearing, and most importantly, when we come back, the voice of Valladares. And by the way, what a movie. It would play like a Cuban Braveheart. And again, more poetry from Armando Valladares as well. The life of Fidel Castro. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and the life of Fidel Castro is understood through one dissident, Armando Valladares. And before we read you one of his poems, and one that the Beckett Fund, a terrific religious liberty organization, shared with us called A Minute of Salt, which Valladares dedicated to all of those Cubans who perished in the ocean, trying to escape their homeland. That dark passage. And just some facts before I read it from the Beckett Fund. In 1960, now imagine this, picture this in your head. Cuba had 7 million people. 1.2 million current Cuban exiles live in this country. That means that between 15 and 20% of the people of Cuba fled 
and risk death. By the way, the only time you see percentages reaching that ratio is the Great Potato Famine of Ireland, where people had a very stark choice. Move or die. Move or starve to death. And by the way, so many of those Cubans moored themselves in two particular parts of the country. Miami and a town in northern New Jersey that is the town my mother and father grew up in. And Cuban exiles took it over. West New York, New Jersey and the surrounding areas where some 100 to 125,000 Cubans live now. And I learned about so many of these stories, spending time amongst the folks there, playing basketball, sitting at shops, eating lunches. So here's the poem he wrote to those people who died. A Minute of Salt, it's called. To the thousands of men, women, and children who have perished in the sea trying to flee communism, a minute of salt for the silence of those who could not return to dust. Jehovah surely forgot about the waters, about those who died in the beating wave, their mouths filled with algae, their eyes devoured by the fish, about those who became anchors of swollen flesh or modern Jonahs quartered in the bellies of sharks. A minute of salt for the silence of those who dissolved unnamed and unremembered. Those who sank while searching for the light and the word. Those who were swept away by lead while on their rafts dreaming of freedom. Those who have neither tombstones nor tombs nor crosses. Those who lie I know not where. Because there are no tombs in the sea. Again, these poems smuggled out of a prison became an international sensation. And by the way, Castro was now in a bind. What does he do with this now world-famous poet? By the way, the Russians had the same problem with Solzhenitsyn. So many people would ask me, why didn't they just kill him? They couldn't now. And plus, as you can imagine, Castro wanted his soul. And if he killed him, Vyadaros would have won. And so Vyadaros understood that the dictator's pride was also his, in the end, Achilles' heel. So let's hear from Armando Vyadaros and his talk to the Beckett Fund and to Americans and to citizens worldwide about governments and their ability to censor, their ability to use force to get one to think or not think what they want to think. Let's take a listen. A muchos de ustedes, especialmente a los jóvenes, les parecerá que procedo de otra época o de un lugar remoto. For many of you, particularly for you young people, it may seem that I come from a faraway land from a long, long time ago. Amigos jóvenes, Puede que nunca sufran la experiencia de ser llevados a punta de pistola como me ocurrió a mí por mantenerme fiel a mi conciencia. Young friends, you may never be taken away at gunpoint as I was for staying true to your conscience. Pero hay otras, pero hay 
muchas maneras de verse silenciado en sus escuelas, en sus universidades, en sus centros de trabajo. But there are many other ways to take you away and to imprison your body and your mind. There are many ways you can be silenced in your schools, your universities, your workplace. Les advierto que igual que existe una pequeña distancia entre Estados Unidos y Cuba, hay una distancia muy pequeña entre la democracia y una dictadura donde el gobierno decide lo que creemos y lo que hacemos. I warn you, just as there's a very short distance between the United States and Cuba, there's a very short distance between a democracy and a dictatorship where the government tells you what you do, what do you think, and how to live. Y a veces la libertad no es arrebatada a punta de pistola, sino mediante un pedazo de papel cada vez, una ley aparentemente insignificante cada vez, un silenciamiento cada vez. And sometimes your freedom is not taken away at gunpoint, but instead it is done one piece of paper at a time, what seemingly meaningless rule at a time, one small silencing at a time. Tengan cuidado, amigos jóvenes. Nunca cedan, nunca permitan que el gobierno o cualquier otra persona o entidad les diga lo que pueden o no pueden creer, lo que pueden o no pueden decir, o lo que sea que sus propias conciencias les ordenen hacer. Never allow the government or anyone else to tell you what you can and cannot believe, what you can and cannot say, or what your conscience is telling you to do or not to do. Un país que no es perfecto pero que nos permite vivir en una sociedad donde cada cual puede tener una opinión diferente a la de otra persona y a la del gobierno. Our country is not perfect, but nevertheless, it still allows us to live in a society where we can hold a different view from each other and a different view from the government. Algo que no solamente se tolera en una democracia, sino que se define como un derecho que debe protegerse por la ley. This is not something that is merely tolerated in our society, but instead is a right that is protected by our own laws. And again, I think the telling line there in that reading, by the way, that translation was by the Beckett Fund's executive director, Christina Arriaga. And she's just terrific. And sometimes your freedom is not taken away at gunpoint, but instead it is done one piece of paper at a time, one seemingly meaningless rule at a time, one small silencing at a time. So well said. And we'll leave with one last poem. And Faith picked this one out. It's called Heroic. Pens, pencils, ink, because they don't want me to write and they've sunk me here in this punishment cell, but they aren't going to drown my rebellion that way. They've taken everything from me, or almost everything. I still have my smile. The proud sense that I'm a free man, an eternally flowering garden in my soul. They've taken everything from me, pens, pencils, but I still have life's ink, my own blood, and I'm still writing poems with that. Fidel Castro, Armando Valladares. This is Our American Stories.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for one of our favorite regular features. And it's called The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. Her latest question for the Wall Street Journal, and you can see it there regularly. Should high schools offer nap time? And I know the whole staff here is thinking, should Habib offer nap time? <laughs> and, well, Heidi, how did this how did this subject come up? And is there nap time in Heidi household? Oh, I'm feeling I'm still in bed. I shouldn't even say that, but it's my it's the day after my birthday. It's not even my birthday, but I'm uh, I'm working from bed. This is what I do on days when it's beautifully sunny out, but too cold to go outside. But should there be nap time in high school? Well, so this is the, okay. The, where the idea came from was I'm ashamed to admit, but I was in, I was applying my oldest son for high school, and we were talking to all these kids here in our new town of Chicago, and every kid was talking about how they have a nap club, or they bring their sleeping bags to school, or they're encouraged to use their free periods um, to take a little snooze. There's sofas at some schools where they're allowed to lay down and just take a little break. There's... um, there's a free period. If you, Your free period can come early in the morning, first period, if you have good grades so you can sleep in. And so then I started to look into it, and, you know, it was like 2014. There was a big movement from the um, American Academy of um, Pediatrics that uh, talked about pushing school start times, especially for high schoolers, to no earlier than 8.30. I don't know what time your high school started. Mine started at 7.15 in Arizona. Wow, and and by the way, Heidi, they start in the South. They start even elementary school. I take my kid to school at quarter to seven for a seven o'clock start, which means she's getting up at six. And I got to tell you, it don't make any sense to me. You know, sixth graders getting up that early. It's brutal. So then add on top of it, high schoolers who have like four hours of homework, perhaps a sport. Maybe they're doing model UN. They're uh, they're studying for their SATs. They have a social life. They're of course they're all on their phones all the time. And these kids are ending up with maybe five hours of sleep. So sleep deprivation is really a big problem. So there was a big move to move um, school start times to no earlier than 8.30. It did happen here in Chicago. Um, And it's hard because the routes of the buses and parents going to work and all these things have to change after school sports. It's a big dramatic shift. It hasn't happened everywhere. So some schools for whom this hasn't happened, they're looking at other ways where they can attack sleep deprivation. And a lot of it, interestingly, is happening at schools where kids are at risk for dropping out of high school, not going on to college. Um, so it isn't just there was a, a lot of talk with my editors about like, well, is this just, you know, coddling these snowflakes? <laughs> and, right. um, but it isn't. I mean, a lot of uh, there's like data to back up that there's not a lot of data amongst teenagers because you, you can't really do so much data. But there was some in Brazil um, and some in Europe. And um, and there's lots of data about shift workers that can benefit from naps. Um, and from just grown-ups that can benefit not too long of a nap, like 20 to 30 minutes is really optimal. Um, And then it comes into, like, do we have space? Do we have um, teachers who can oversee this? Can we ensure that these children aren't abusing their privilege? So it's a a complicated Yeah, there's a lot lot to think about. A lot to think (laughs) about. And by the way, you know, it's interesting. We talk about the snowflakes, and they're out there. But I've also noticed, and I think you have too, Heidi, that there's never been more pressure on kids, too. I mean, when I went to high school, no 
one was taking SAT camp. When I played basketball, I didn't go on the road and play all over multi-states. I didn't have all the advanced placement and all the pressure about my my GPA being 4.25 out of a four point. So we've created snowflakes. But at the same time, boy, we've been bearing down on these kids. And a lot of these kids, they bear down on themselves. And then when you take the inner city kids, and I've spent a lot of time around them, my goodness, the stressful environment some of these kids live in, there's no sleeping at night. Exactly. I mean, there were some some educators I spoke with, and they said, you know, one kid's mom had sold his mattress for money, and so he was sleeping on the floor, and so of course he's tired. So it isn't just kids that are going to private schools and have every advantage. Yes, they they I think they themselves and their parents feel like they need to be, you know, the president of every club right. and on the travel soccer team as the captain and all that stuff in order to get into, you know, Princeton, but but also just kids that need to just cope. I mean, kids need, they need eight and a half to 10 and a half hours of sleep. I mean, an eight and a half to nine and a half is the sleep, uh, American Academy of Sleep Medicine says. And that's just, I mean, how are you going to squeeze that in? So I thought it was a really interesting idea. So some of these schools have like a wellness center in in California, Northern California, they put, especially for these at-risk kids, they put the wellness center on campus, which is so smart so that kids can see doctors talk about sex ed, things they maybe can't do at home or don't have access to, um, they can do that at school. And along with that is like a cozy, comfortable area where they can have a cup of tea and it's free and just they chill out on a, on a couch for a couple minutes or 15 minutes and just relax and take a break from the day. There are other schools who are doing really interesting things using, and they're really test cases, but using transcendental meditation and then the the, the other group is the control group is they're not doing transcendental meditation meditation. They're just doing um, quiet time. They call it quiet time. And it's, I mean, these are kids that are old. I mean, they're 16, 17 year olds and they're sitting in a room and not talking, no electronics for 15, 20 minutes um, at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day. And they've seen grades go up. They've seen violence decrease. So I don't believe that it's, um, you know, it's, it's something that for these coddled kids and a lot of the posts, I mean, there were a lot of positive comments at the bottom, but a lot of them were also like, how about parents, parents, and let their kids sleep at night. But parents are also saying, I want you to go to college, and I want you to get good grades. So there's just a lot of pressure coming at them from every angle. You bet. And in Japan, Maizen High School gained international attention a decade ago for encouraging a midday siesta for all students. And teachers saw a dramatic rise in test scores. Heidi, talk about that. Isn't that interesting? So Japan is an interesting case because they put, um, they take pride in their nap time. Um, so they, there's a word for it. I don't remember what it is. There was a New York Times na- um, article on how falling asleep, it's called being asleep and being present. It's a word that translates that, but the sleeping at your desk or on the train is very common and isn't looked down upon. Whereas, you know, in New York City on the subway, you know, you nudge the guy next to you like you're asleep, dude. Um, and so there, there isn't a stigma attached to falling asleep, and it's maybe even beneficial. Um, I've talked to other um, people like at the Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic, and they, um, they take naps in the middle of the day, turn off all the... I mean, these are highly engaged professional you know, researchers and, and top of their field, and they will take a 20-minute nap in the middle of the day. So there are cultures in certain settings where napping is... Of course, there's a siesta, which is part of Latin American and Spanish culture, and it makes sense because you would rise with the sun and you would sleep with the sun. And so sometimes your days were long. Yep. And after lunch, there's a known dip in your mental state. And so it makes sense that after lunch, you'd maybe carve out 
15, 20 minutes and, and just chill out. Oh, I'm half Italian, Heidi. That was a part of our <laughs> life. We had the big meals on Saturday and Sunday in the early afternoon. And then everybody went their ways and took a nap and it got really quiet. And yes, it was and the wonderful. Rest of productive, right? Yep. I mean, you're you're alert and awake. Kids for four o'clock. I mean, kids will take a power shake. They'll drink a Starbucks. You know, to get, just like grownups do. You know, to stay awake at four o'clock and and get be alert and you know be able to tackle AP calculus. And it's it's tough. <laughs> so I I mean I'm all for this. I think that the days probably need to be long enough, you know, so you could squeeze in a 20-minute nap and just, like, maybe play some Enya, turn down the music. <laughs> exactly. And get turn off your cell life. phone. And get off your cell get phone. Get off your cell phone. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now, not everyone is convinced, Heidi, as we close this out, not everyone's convinced that this works. What are some of the teachers' and parents' responses that you talk about? And, again, we're talking to Heidi Mitchell of the Wall Street Journal, and this is one of our favorite segments, The Burning Question. What was some of the mixed reaction? So one that I really thought was well argued was that the reason why we are tired at whatever it is, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at, at night, is because it, the distance from your last sleep is how tired you're going to be. So it's called sleep pressure. And if you nap in the middle of the day, you could be taking away some of that sleep pressure, which then might encourage these already overtaxed teenagers to stay up even later because they're just not tired. So you want to make sure that that they have enough sleep pressure that they're falling asleep. So you could make that nap, you know, if school starts at 8 and you can make that nap at 12.30, they're still going to be tired by 10.30. And right. I think 10 hours is fine. So so she had a good argument, though, that I'd rather see kids going to bed, you know, at 9.30 and waking up at 5.30 or whatever and getting their real eight and a half hours in um, than, than she would seeing them take a nap at school. And then, of course, many people I spoke to were like, where are they getting the money and where are they finding the space and like who's donating the yoga mats and you know is this a reality or are these kids just you know making out in the bathroom and and <laughs> and texting each other during right. this supposed nap time right um so that's what you know lot, Heidi what I worry about or wonder about is you get a bunch of kids and you go okay kids nap and how does that right. work? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, you can't. You can take a, a horse to water, right? But I think that just even studies have shown that even just darkening the room and calming it down. Yep. I mean, especially with if you can meditate or just not clear your mind of any thoughts for ten minutes, for fifteen minutes, it does have an impact on the rest of your day, and you're more able to learn. I mean, some people were saying to me this might be the new free school lunch right. that they realized that kids couldn't learn in the afternoons because they weren't eating. So they brought in this free lunch, um, and one of the schools I spoke to, like 90% of the kids are on the free lunch program, and they're letting them um, use these nap pods, and they've seen violence go down in the school, and they've seen less um, absenteeism. So, Well, if it works, know, if it works Heidi, the jury's out, but, you know, we love the subject. Should high schools offer nap time, and should our American stories offer nap time? That's the burning <laughs> question here in the office. Thanks, as always, for joining us, Heidi. <laughs> Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Heidi Mitchell of the Wall Street Journal.
Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. We'll begin with a spin traveling in the world of my creation. What we'll see will defy explanation. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the great Gene Wilder sing Pure Imagination in the 1971 movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And for the next hour, we're going to celebrate the life of this great actor who starred in so many of our favorite movies over the past 50 years. From the producers to Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein and so many others. Gene Wilder, stage actor, screen comic actor, and by the way, nobody did comedy better. And it's the hardest Hardest aspect of acting. Any actor will tell you this. Getting people to laugh is no duck walk. He was a screenwriter, a film director, and my goodness, he can interpret a song too. You just heard it. And an author as well. He was born Jerome Silberman on June 11, 1933 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the son of Jan and William Silberman, a manufacturer and salesman of novelty items. His father was a Russian Jewish immigrant, as were his maternal grandparents. Wilder first became interested in acting at age eight when his mother was diagnosed with rheumatic fever, and the doctors told him to try and make her laugh. Here, Gene talks about that time in his life. When I was a a little boy, I mean seven or eight, my mother had a heart attack, and the doctor said, don't ever get angry with your mom because you could kill her. Make her laugh. And that was the first time I remember consciously trying to make someone laugh. And I did. I made her laugh, and my criterion was if I could make her pee in her pants, then I knew I had done something funny. I'm I'm, I'm saying it, I I don't, I'm not saying it for a joke. It's very true, because she'd say, now look what you've made me do. But but little boys and, and grown men are confident of what they do in life because of of what their mothers told them that they were good at. And when I knew I could make my mother laugh, I felt I could make someone else laugh. And that's all I'm doing now, is carrying on the tradition. Indeed. At the age of 11, he saw his sister, who was studying acting, performing on stage, and he was enthralled by the experience. He asked her teacher if he could become his student, and the teacher said that if he was still interested at age 13, he would take Wilder on as a student. The day after Wilder turned 13, he called that teacher who accepted him. Wilder studied with him for two years. Here, Wilder talks about his earliest influences as an actor and how he discovered his approach to being a comedic actor. When I was growing up, um, I heard Danny Kaye on a record before I ever saw him, before Up in Arms, and I thought that's what I'd like to do. Then I saw Up in Arms. But then when I was in junior high school, I started to, uh, my idol then was Sid Caesar. Unbeknownst, well, I didn't realize that Mel Brooks was writing most of the material, so I got to know Mel before I even knew him. But uh, then I saw 
Lee J. Cobb in Death of a Salesman on Broadway. And I realized that he was doing something different from what I had thought I wanted to do. It didn't mean that I didn't want to yeah. be in comedy, but I wanted to approach it in a different way, through character, instead of just stepping on banana peels and mm. making funnies. Indeed, and that's when the best comedic acting occurs. When his mother felt that Gene's potential was not being fully realized in Wisconsin, she sent him to Black Fox, a military institute in Hollywood, where he was bullied primarily because he was the only Jewish boy in the school according to his own account. After an unsuccessful short stay at Black Fox, Wilder returned home and became increasingly involved with the local theater community. At age 15, he performed for the first time in front of a paying audience in a production of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Gene Wilder graduated from the Washington High School in Milwaukee in 1951. Here, Gene talks about how he went from the name Jerome Silberman to Gene Wilder. I had just gotten into the actor's studio, which was a big thrill for me and I didn't want to be introduced as Jerry Silberman I couldn't picture Jerry Silberman in Hamlet or Macbeth or something like that and I had to think of a name overnight and um, my sister and brother-in-law had a friend who's the fastest talker I've ever met and he started with A and worked his way up through the alphabet when he got to W he said Wilder and I said that's the one I want and then for the first name it was because of uh, Thomas Wolfe's books, uh, the fir- Look Homeward Angel, and the hero's name was Eugene, but everyone called him Gene, who loved him, and The Web and the Rock, and You Can't Go Home Again, it was always Gene, so I put the two together, and then I was introduced by Lee Strasberg as Gene Wilder, because there, Eli Kazan, and Shelley Winters, and Rod Steiger, and Paul Newman, and uh, I didn't want them to say, Jerry, what's your name, Jerry or Gene or what? So that's how it started. And we're going to hear more about this great life story, but what good luck on his part to land in New York at the Actors Studio at that time. Lee Strasberg, who, if you remember, plays a remarkable part in The Godfather and is one of the great acting coaches in American history, teaching some of the great actors today that we all love and teaching him a certain methodology of acting called The Method. Some loved it, some didn't. But my goodness, the ones who lived by it gave us some of the finest craft ever. And in the end, it's what made Wilder so good. He, he decided to become the characters. And then we laughed, but he wasn't. And this, you see, even in Seinfeld, to this day, that style, which is the, they're not slipping on banana peels, they're in character. George is in character. We just find that character hilarious. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You're going to hear about Gene Wilder's life in his own words, a remarkable American life, which we celebrate here on Our American Stories. Jerome Silberman becomes Gene Wilder, and we'll pick it up right there after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, the life of Gene Wilder. Following his 1955 graduation from Iowa, he was accepted at the Bristol Old Vic Theater School in Bristol, England. After six months of studying fencing, Wilder became the first freshman to win the all-school fencing championship. No small feat. He was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1956, and at the end of recruit training, he was assigned to the Medical Corps and sent to Fort Sam Houston for training. In November of 57, his mother died from ovarian cancer. He was discharged from the Army a year later and returned to New York. A scholarship to the HB studio allowed him to become a full-time student. At first, living on unemployment insurance and some savings, he later supported himself with odd jobs such as a limo driver and fencing instructor. Wilder began his career on stage and made his screen debut in the TV series Armstrong Circle Theater in 1962. Although his first film role was portraying a hostage in the 1967 motion picture Bonnie and Clyde, Wilde's first major role was as Leopold Bloom in the 1968 masterpiece The Producers, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. This was the first in a series of collaborations with writer-director Mel Brooks, including 1974's Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, which Wilder co-wrote garnering the pair an Academy Award nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. Here's Gene Wilder talking with Larry King about the moment he met Mel Brooks and how Mel Mel introduced him to a screenplay called Springtime for Hitler. I was in a play called Mother Courage by Bertolt Brecht, starring Anne Bancroft, whose boyfriend was Mel Brooks, and Mel came by to pick her up each evening after the show. And I was having trouble with one little section in the play. And he said, he gave me tips on how to act Brecht. He said, that's a song and a dance. He's proselytizing about communism. Just skip over that. Sing and dance right over it and get on to the good stuff. And he was right. That's the irony. And I did. Then he said, would you like to come to Fire Island with Annie and me? Uh, I'll read you the first 30 pages of a movie I'm writing. And I went to Fire Island We went fishing on the surf, came back, had dinner, and then Annie and I sat down and he read 30 pages of Springtime for Hitler. That's what it was called then. And then he said, would you like to play that part of Leo Bloom? I said, absolutely. He said, all right, all right. So don't take anything in the fall without checking with me. September came and I was offered One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Not the movie, the play with Kirk Douglas. So I called Mel and said, I feel a little silly, but you said, yeah, 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 yeah. Can you get a four-week out in your contract? I said, no one knows me. I can't. No, they said, can you get a two-week out? He said. I said, maybe a four-week, because I'm not a star. All right, we'll have to live with it, he said. Three years went by. I never heard from him. I didn't get a telegram. I didn't <laughs> get a telephone call. And I'm doing Murray Shiskal's play called Love on Broadway, matinee, taking off my makeup, Knock, knock on the door. I open the door. There's Mel with a tall stranger. I said, Mel. (laughs) He said, you don't think I forgot, do you? (laughs) Classic. Wilder goes on to describe how Mel Brooks introduced him to Sidney Glazier and Zero Mostel. He said, this is Sidney Glazier, our producer. We're going to do Springtime for Hitler now. But I can't just cast you. You got to beat Zero first. Tomorrow, 10 o'clock, my heart was pounding. 
I got to the office door of Sidney Glazier's office. The door opens, there's Mel. He says, come on in. Z, he called zero Z. This is Gene. Gene, this is Z. And I put out my hand tentatively. And Zero grabbed my hand, pulled me to him, and kissed me on the lips. <laughs> and all my nervousness went away. And then we did the reading, and I got the part, and everything was fine. Yeah, try that sometime, folks. Here's Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel from an early scene in The Producers, where Leo Bloom, the accountant played by Wilder, throws an absolute fit when Max Bialystok, played by Zero Mostel, the producer, takes away his little blue blanket. May I speak to you for a minute? Go. You have 58 seconds. Well, and glancing at your books, I noticed that in the columns... You have 48 the... seconds left. Hurry, hurry. Oh, uh, I glanced at your books, I noticed in the columns... 28 the seconds. You're running out of time. Mr. Bialystok, I cannot function under these conditions. You're making me extremely nervous. What is that, a handkerchief? Nothing, that's nothing. If it's nothing, know. why can't I see it? Oh, no! my, my blanket! My blue blanket! Give me my blue blanket! my blue blanket! It's not important. It's a minor compulsion. I can deal with it if I want to. It's just that I've had it ever since I was a baby, and I find it very comforting. <laughs> oh, the physical performance by Gene Wilder is as good as the verbal, and Buster Keaton would be, well, looking down from heaven and just thinking, wow. In 1971, Wilder auditioned to play Willy Wonka on Mel Stewart's film adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Wilder was initially hesitant when he learned about the role, but finally accepted it under one condition. Here's Gene Wilder with that story. I'd read, read the book, and Mel Stewart, the director, came to my home in New York. And he said, you want to do it? I said, well, I'll tell you, I'd like to do it if I can come out and all the crowd quiets down, and I'm, I'm using a cane. Oh, my God, Willy Wonka is crippled. And I walk slowly, and you can hear a pin drop, and my cane gets stuck in a brick. And I do, I fall over on my face and do a forward somersault and jump up, and they all start to applaud. He said, what do you, Mel Stewart said, what do you want to do that for? I said, because no one will know from that point on whether I'm lying or telling the truth. He said, are you saying you won't do the film if, if you can't do that? I said, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Do it. And I meant it. He did mean it. And that's why Gene Wilder is Gene Wilder. Yeah, because that's not in the book. It is not in the book. When Woody Allen offered him a role in one segment of everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask, Gene Wilder accepted. Everything, the movie, was a hit. It grossed $18 million in the United States against a $2 million budget. Here is the scene from that film where Wilder plays a doctor whose patient informs him about his love for a particular barnyard animal. Come in, Mr. Milos. Come in. Sit down right over here. I just want to get some history on you first. So, your name is... Stavros Milos. And your address? Armenia. Armenia. I am from Armenia. 
I am visiting my brother. I see. Um, occupation? Shepherd. A shepherd? My whole family. Except for my brother over here, who is a rug salesman. Mm -hmm. Have you had any major illnesses? No. None. Good. So. Now, what seems to be the trouble? I'm in love with the sheep. I beg your pardon? <laughs> I am in love with the sheep. <laughs> oh, I see. See, doctor, up there in the mountains where I tend my flocks, it's so beautiful under the starry skies. And I am alone. And sometimes it gets so lonely. And the hours pass. And soon I desire a woman. But, doctor, there are no women. I'm not married and... Well, one night last summer, I saw her. Her? Daisy. Sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and how Gene Wilder plays this, how straight he plays it, is just one of the hardest things to do in comedy. And it's what made it so good. He just played the part. And, you know, sitting in front of me is a, a book called True and False by David Mamet, the great playwright and acting coach. And he continually says again and again, just do the words. Just let the words do the work. It's not about you. It's not about your performance. Let the words do the work. And let the character be revealed through the words. Actually, it sounds real simple. But you heard Gene Wilder in that conversation about a prior movie and his artistic decision. And you're hearing it again and again in each of these clips. You know, he plays the accountant and the producers, and he just plays it straight. And that's why he's so damn good. When we come back, young Frankenstein and beyond. This young actor becomes a mature and seasoned actor, and pretty soon an internationally famous one. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story celebrating the life of Gene Wilder. listening to some of the theme music from Young Frankenstein. We're talking about Gene Wilder, his life. We're celebrating it here on Our American Stories. And after everything you always wanted to know about sex, Woody Allen's movie, Wilder began working on a script he called Young Frankenstein. Here, Wilder talks about the creation of that script, the casting of the film, and trying to get Mel Brooks on board on the project. I went back east, and it was... Uh... March or April, and I had a little place in West Hampton Beach, Long Island. And after lunch, I took a, a yellow legal pad and a blue felt pen, and I wrote Young Frankenstein on top. And then for two 
two pages, I thought, what could happen to me if I suddenly found out I was an heir to Beaufort von Frankenstein's whole estate in Transylvania? And I finished the two pages. I called Mel. I told him, well, he says, cute. It's cute. That's all he said. And then later on that summer, Mike Medavoy, who was my agent at the time, you got anything for you and Peter Boyle and Marty Feldman? I said, well, what made you think of that company? He said, because I now handle you and Peter <laughs> and Marty. I said, well, with a wonderful artistic basis. Uh, as it happens, I think I do. Send it to me. I said, no, give me another day or two. And I wrote two more pages. The Transylvania Station, almost verbatim the way it is. And it put an ending on it. Track 29. Yes, yes. And uh, Mike Medavoy called me and said, I think I can sell this. What do you think about Mel directing? I said, yeah, I'd love it, but you're whistling Dixie because he won't direct something he didn't conceive of. Now, you have to remember that Mel spent two years on the producers and made $25,000 a year. He spent the next two years on the 12 chairs, $25,000 a year. Neither one made a penny. Joe Levine made money, but yeah. Mel didn't. They were offering him 250000 or 25000 or whatever to direct this. And he said yes. He called me. He said, what are you getting me into? I said, nothing you don't want to get into. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Next day, they said, we signed Mel. Having just seen Marty Feldman, and by the way, that's the actor who played Igor, on television, Wilder was inspired to write a scene that takes place at Transylvania Station where Igor and Frederick meet for the first time. The scene was included in the film almost verbatim. Dr. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. You're putting me on. No, it's pronounced Frankenstein. Do you also say Froderick? No, Frederick. Well, why isn't it Froderick Frankenstein? It isn't. It's Frederick Frankenstein. I see. You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced Igor. But they told me it was Igor. Well, they were wrong then, weren't they? Of course. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. Oh, sorry. I, uh... You know, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I'm a rather brilliant surgeon. Perhaps I could help you with that hump. What hump? <laughs> what hump? Young Frankenstein was a huge success, with Wilder and Brooks receiving Best Adapted Screenplay nominations at the 1975 Oscars, losing to Francis Coppola and Mario Puzo for their adapt adaptation of The Godfather Part Two. Shortly after Young Frankenstein, Wilder and Brooks set out on another film, called Blazing Saddles. Here, Gene talks about how he was nearly cast for another role. I wanted to uh, play the Waco Kid, the part that I did play. And Mel said, no, 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 I wanna, you're too young. I want an over-the-hill alcoholic. I got Dan Daly who's going to play it. He wanted me to play Harvey Corman's part. I said, I'm all wrong for this. And um, six weeks went by. Dan Daly begged off because he had just finished some directing something. So they got Gig Young. Gig Young got into the costume, makeup, on the way to the jail cell, and foam started coming out of his mouth. He was on the wagon suddenly and withdrawing. And Mel thought he was acting, you know, some method acting. He said, good, keep doing what you're doing. 
And, uh, and then he passed out, and Mel said, it's a sign from God. He called me from the, s the phone on stage. He said, can you come tomorrow? I said, I'm supposed to go to London to do uh, The Little Prince with Stanley Donnan directing. Beg off. The next day I was on a plane, and the next day I was hanging upside down in the jail cell. And here's Gene Wilder introducing himself as the Waco Kid from this scene in Blazing Saddles. I don't know if you ever heard of me before, but I used to be called the Waco Kid. I was just walking down the street, and I heard a voice behind me say, Reach for it, mister. And I spun around. And there I was, face to face, with a six-year-old kid. Well, I just threw my guns down and walked away. Little bastard shot me in the ass. <laughs> so I limped to the nearest saloon, crawled inside a whiskey bottle, <laughs> and I've been there ever since. In 1975, Wilder's agent sent him a script for a film called Super Chief. Wilder accepted, but told the film's producers that he thought the only person who could keep the film from being offensive was Richard Pryor. Pryor accepted the role in the film, which had been renamed Silver Streak, the first film to team Wilder and Pryor. They became Hollywood's most successful interracial movie comedy duo. Here, Wilder talks about that chemistry he had with Pryor and how they always found it easy to improvise with each other. I hope this comes out right, but it's a little bit like sex. You know, when you, <laughs> when you meet someone and the chemistry is there, you don't know why, you don't know how, but it's there. I met him the night before we did our first scene. We hugged, we did the first scene, and he said something, and I said something, and it wasn't in the script after the camera started rolling. And it went very well. And I, he said, did you know you were going to say that? I said, no. Did you know you were going to say that? He said, no. I never improvised in a film before. In, in classes I did, but not in a film. But with him, I always improvised. Because if you don't, you're not going to be anywhere. Not with Richard. In 1980, Wilder teamed up again with Richard Pryor in Stir Crazy, directed by Sidney Poitier. Pryor was struggling with a severe cocaine addiction at the time, and filming became difficult. But once the film premiered, it became an international success. Here's Gene Wilder talking about his approach to acting, the choices he makes, and his thoughts on show business. I studied for altogether maybe 18 years. I got accepted into the actor's studio. I would approach doing... Leo Bloom in The Producers in the same way as I would do Death of a Salesman. But the choices would be different. I would make comic choices. But the acting process, create a human being who's real, not only to the audience, but real to me. And so I, I think if you want to say the, uh, you're a method comic actor, yes, without getting into what method is, but uh, a Stanislavski comic actor, yes because I'm trying to do it the same way I would. I don't, I don't mean this to sound, uh, I don't want it to come out funny, but I don't like show business. I love acting in films. 
I love it. I like the show, but I don't like the business. And when I go to a restaurant and they're talking 3.6, 9.8, and how many, what the budget, and, the, and everyone is a, a writer or a director or an actor or a producer, and it, it just makes me nervous. And that's Gene Wilder talking about his craft and the business. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and the quintessential American story of Gene Wilder. More after these messages. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes, or cutaway coat, perfect fits. Dressed up this like is our American stories. And was there anything Gene Wilder Trying couldn't do? We learned that he worked for and with Sidney Poitier, and they became fast friends, working together on a script called Traces, which became 1982's Hanky Panky, the film where Wilder met comedian Gilda Radner. And that was in August of 1981. It would change his life. When filming ended, Wilder found himself missing Radner, so he called her. The relationship grew, and the couple married in September of 1984 in the south of France. Anyone who knows the story of Gene Wilder knows about the deep connection he had with Gilda, whose life was tragically cut short by ovarian cancer, that same cancer that took Gene's mother. Here together, Gene and Gilda talk about their relationship shortly before her passing. To me, it's irresistible. A funny man is irresistible more than any looks, more than any... She anything. was always a sucker for a, a big laugh. A sucker for a laugh. I, I'm the best audience. She is my teacher. Because she tells the truth more than I do. When I am faced with a really tough one where I, I get hurt, I withdraw into what Gilda calls a dot. Dot man. And she <laughs> will lambast me until I have the courage to get angry with her, respect her enough to get angry with her and let her have it, not in order to punish her, but to say what's truly on my heart, what hurt my feelings. Because if you harbor it, it comes out in another way. But if you say it at the time, it's gone. Five minutes later, it's gone. Maybe the next day. <laughs> or possibly in three years. But it does go yeah. away. Twelve years ago, it wouldn't have worked. At this minute, right here, now specifically, yeah, we're happy. I'm, yeah, we're happy. Yeah. Here, Gene Wilder talks about keeping romance alive in a relationship that's been going on for a few years. I feel very strongly, from my own experience and from what I've seen in the world, that when it hits that way, the classic way that we hear about, it's not sex that men are looking for. When they have a good woman, children, it's adventure. They want a reaffirmation that they're a man. So they, they think that they'll find it by conquests. And if, if husbands and wives or, or people who are living together can keep alive the romance in their relationship so that when the egg is running down the corner of your mouth in the morning and 
the breath isn't quite so good, or there's a little toothpaste on the side of the whatever. You know, after two, three, four years of that, you start to think, of, well, where's the romance in my life? But couples can keep romance in their lives. Wilder explains how Gilda kept him grounded and got his attention, ultimately changing his life. Gilda was different in this respect. She said, uh, I'm here for a purpose, and that's to get you to wake up and smell the coffee, not be off in the clouds someplace, listening to Mozart or Jacques Brel, but to be here with me. And when you feel anger or you feel something on your mind, you say so right now, here and now. I'm not a perfect woman that you've been searching for all your life. I'm just little imperfect Gilda. And if that's what you want, a real love, I'm your best bet. And that changed my life. Wow. Here Wilder talks about Gilda's untimely passing and the misdiagnosis of her cancer early on. She kept seeing doctors, and they said, no, everything's okay. What are you worried about, they would say. And she would say, I'm worried I have cancer. Well, it's nothing life-threatening, they said. And she used to complain that they don't believe me. They don't believe me. If she had been diagnosed nine, eight, seven, six months before, um, I'm not telling you that I know but I would bet my bottom dollar that she'd be alive today. I thought she was going to pull it out. I never thought she would die. Never. And sometimes she would grab my hand and look at me, stare right into my soul and say, really? Really? And I'd say, if I could live as long as you're going to live, I'd settle right now. And I meant it. I thought that I would die before she did. I thought she would make it. After her death, Wilder spent several months researching cancer and contacting experts to figure out what went wrong, why his wife wasn't given a simple test that would have detected immediately whether she had ovarian cancer. In May of 91, he testified before Congress advocating for patients. Then he co-founded Gilda's Club, a nonprofit organization with local chapters all over the United States, which provides social support for cancer patients and their caregivers. He also gave Radner's name to the Ovarian Cancer Research Program at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. In this clip from the 2003 compilation Voices for Gilda, a tribute to benefit the Gilda's Club organization, Gene Wilder shares a short, touching tribute to his deceased wife. The song Ohio is a number from the 1953 musical Wonderful Town. Gilda and I used to sing this little song by Leonard Bernstein from the musical Wonderful Town. We sang it for our closest friends at intimate little dinner parties when everyone was supposed to get up and do something. I was always nervous getting up and doing something, but Gilda and I sang this song, and it made us feel better. Once in a while, we even sang it alone at home when we were feeling a little lonely. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why did I ever leave Ohio? Why did I wander to find what lies yonder when life was so cheery at home? Oh, wandering while I wander, why did I stray? Why 
why did I roam? Oh, why, oh, why, oh, did I leave Ohio? Maybe I'd better go. Oh, H-I-O, maybe I'd better go home. Wilder spent most of his time painting watercolors, writing, and participating in charitable efforts. In 98, he collaborated on the book Gilda's Disease with oncologist Stephen Piver, sharing personal experiences of Radner's struggles with ovarian cancer. Wilder himself was hospitalized with non-Hodgkin lymphoma in 99, but confirmed in March 2005 that the cancer was in complete remission following chemo and a stem cell transplant. Wilder died at the age of 83 on August 29, 2016, at home in Stamford, Connecticut, from complications of Alzheimer's disease. He had kept knowledge of his condition private, but had been diagnosed three years prior to his death. Jordan Walker Perlman, the nephew child of the legendary actor, wrote this statement to honor the special person in his life. And I quote, It is with indescribable sadness and blues, but with spiritual gratitude for the life lived that I announced the passing of husband, parents, and universal artist Gene Wilder at his home in Stamford, Connecticut. It is almost unbearable for us to contemplate our life without him. The cause was complications from Alzheimer's disease, with which he coexisted for the last three years. The choice to keep this private was his, in talking with us and making a decision as a family. We understand for all the emotional and physical challenges this situation presented, we have been among the lucky ones. This illness pirate, unlike in so many cases, never stole his ability to recognize those that were closest to him, nor took command of his gentle, central, life-affirming core personality. It took enough, but not that. The decision to wait until this time to disclose his condition wasn't vanity, but more so that the countless young children that would smile or call out to him, there's Willy Wonka, would not have to then be exposed to an adult referencing illness or trouble and causing delight to travel to worry, to disappointment, or to confusion. He simply couldn't bear the idea of one less smile in the world. He was 83 and passing holding our hands with the same tenderness and love he exhibited as long as I can remember. As our hands clutched and he performed one last breath, the music speaker which was set to random, began to bear out one of his favorites, Ella Fitzgerald. There is a picture of he and Ella meeting at a London bistro some years ago that are among each of our most cherished possessions. She was singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow as he was taken away. This is Our American Stories, The Life of Gene Wilder. place behind the sun Just a step beyond the rain 
Oh